Welcome to the New Masculine Podcast. This is a place where masculine identifying people come together in community to disrupt outdated models of masculinity and together construct new models for our way forward as men. As a special note, while this conversation is between men, this podcast values all beings and seeks to create positive impacts for all. I'm your host, Travis Stock. I am a master life coach, an equus coach, which means I often partner with horses when supporting clients, and I'm a teacher. In my coaching work, I am passionate about the balance of masculine and feminine energies in each of us, regardless of gender. I seek to help others nurture a relationship with both types of energy, which often leads to a greater sense of wholeness. And yet what I found in my work with men is that many of us have been taught messages about what it means to be a man by first teaching us to avoid anything that is associated with the feminine. That avoidance leads to few experiences of intimacy, emotions outside of anger, vulnerability, or even a sense of belonging. Striving to comply with these models of masculinity has many of us feeling isolated, ashamed, unworthy, afraid, angry, and depressed. That's why I started this podcast, to bring men together who are ready for something new, something more whole. As much as I love my conversations around masculinity and facilitation of men's work, I don't see others like me as much as I would like. What I have started to realize is I wish I saw more queer men leading in these spaces. Lucky for me, I recently had the pleasure of meeting my next guest, who is leading a men's work community right in my local area. Max Scotty McGregor is a transgender activist and an educator who provides gender and LGBTQIA diversity training for corporations, colleges, and groups around the world. He also founded and leads an organization in Seattle area called Positive Masculinity, which hosts private groups and workshops for heart-led masculine folks who want to create a transformative path for masculinity in our world. More of this, please. I recently had the pleasure of attending one of their monthly meetings and found the space Mac holds to be diverse, inclusive, and heart-centered. On a personal level, he identifies as a trans man, as queer, and as a teacher. As you might be able to tell, my connection with him brings with it another personal level of meaningfulness around our shared passions, and I have a feeling you'll all be inspired by him as well. So let's welcome him into the new masculine and learn from his life journey with masculinity. Welcome, Mac. Hey, Travis. Great to be with you. I'm so pleased you've joined me. I'm so pleased we've been able to connect as I was sort of talking in the intro. Like, this really does have a lot of personal meaning for me to be with a fellow queer person that leads work around men's work and not just queer men's work, but we're, we're sort of addressing all masculinity and working with men who identify in lots of different ways. And so I really appreciate the work you're doing. And I'm just so grateful that to connect with you around this. Thank you. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. Uh, my journey to get here is quite unusual. <laughs> but, you know, I began my journey studying gender very, um, because, you know, I was born into a uh, of body, but I knew I was masculine since I was four. I started changing my name, playing with other kids to a masculine name. And I was born in the Bible Belt in the South where there wasn't a lot of root, you know, a lot of flexibility in gender roles. It was more rigid. And uh, so, you know, I, I've, I've done this like deep into studying these gender concepts that we have in our communities and society and how to navigate that. And I've also seen such an interesting view of 
I didn't transition till later in life medically because that's, that's a whole story in itself because I was on the U.S. karate team. I wanted the opportunity to compete and they would have not allowed me to compete. Um, I had started transition. So I got this first, you know, like 40 years of my life, this experience that even though I knew who I was inside, the world treated me a different way. So I got that experience. And then when I started transition, you go through the, um, you know, you don't look like this overnight. Mm -hmm. You don't pass like overnight. So you go through this stage where people aren't sure which category in the binary you're in. And so then you see how the world treats you in that when they're sure where you land on that and how uncomfortable that makes people because, you know, they're taught you should be in this box or that box. And mm -hmm. if they're not sure where to put you, it makes people uncomfortable and feel unstable. Right. So I got to experience that as a big observer of human behavior. And so this has been quite the interesting journey. And then how I how I look now, I'm treated totally different. Mm -hmm. um, and just the journey of how the world treats you in uh, those different, different spaces is just really interesting. Yeah, I think what you're talking about is something that really lights me up about why I want more queer men in these spaces is that our life journeys have taught us because of our own life, our own survival mechanisms, our own ways of staying safe in a world that does want us to be one thing or the other, um, yeah. where we are uniquely positioned to explore the concepts of masculinity and to critique it and to have conversations about it because it's been our life work for most of us. And you as a trans man has a bit of a different perspective than me as a gay man. And so it's like, where have our journeys taken us? And so um, I'm just grateful I get to pick your brain or a little bit around this because I do think you're uniquely qualified because of the whole your whole life's journey of of studying this basically. And so um, you kind of alluded to a little bit of your childhood story of growing up, and I'd love to pull apart a little bit more. It sounds like you have a big journey, especially like um, the, your journey with masculinity has been lifelong. I want to hear about that. I want to be a, hear about being on the U.S. karate team. That sounds so cool. Like, tell me, tell me what stories come to mind when you think about your journey with masculinity. Well, um, you know, I didn't meet my father till I was 25. My mom had me at 60. My, her and my dad were young, and, you know, it was just one of those things, uh, uh, young kind of relationship where he, he wasn't around. And my grandparents helped raise me. Uh, thankfully, they were there. And my papa was uh, really in a masculine role model to me. Um, and he was just he taught me so many great life lessons uh, and he taught me to love the earth. He taught me to, to fish. Um, you know, he, he taught me, he's a great storyteller. He taught me how to tell stories. He was very politically active. So he inspired that in me. He taught me very young. Don't sit outside of something and complain about it. Get in there and offer some help to, to come up with solutions. You know, that's how you, you don't sit outside and just complain. And uh, I'm very grateful for those lessons. Um, and, you know, like with a lot of role models, it's complicated because he had some parts to him. So much of him I'm grateful for and want to carry forward. And yet some traditional things that I don't want to carry forward because no one was having these conversations with him. Mm -hmm. 
You know what I mean? Like he gave my grandmother an allowance mm. to, to shop as a housewife. You know what I mean? <laughs> like kind of very traditional thing, you know, where, um, you know, but nobody, like I say, was having these conversations, you know, her, the value of her contribution to everyone's his self-made businessman. He didn't see that at the, as the same as, you know, equal to what he was contributing, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And uh, so, I mean, there's definitely things I don't want to carry forward, but I started martial arts six years old. And I often say that that's my soulmate. And because of coming from a dysfunctional family, my mom's on her 11th marriage now. Um, the martial arts was my positive, you know, chosen family, basically. Mm-hmm. Gave me that sense of chosen family really early. I was in the LGBTQ plus uh, community understand the value of chosen, you know, community, chosen family. Yeah. And the dojo definitely taught really early. It was a place where I got positive reinforcement and I was just a natural athlete that was also willing to do the work, Mm. you know, because I loved it. I was the kid out of the dojo every night until they had to lock the doors. You know? <laughs> <laughs> They're kicking you out. Come on. It's time yeah, to go home, home now. <laughs> so I just ate it up. And then by the time I was 17, I won a lightweight fighting title. And then the world pretty much opened up to me in a lot of ways to compete, which took me out of the deep and gave me, um, the opportunity to see that there were places and people that were LGBTQ plus and were out and open and, and that the world at large wasn't as boxed in as, as things were in the South. And that really, um, you know, it gives you a much broader view of the world, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So that really changed my trajectory and my path. Um, but, you know, I, I always say, one of the things I, I, I said actually teaching at a retreat this last week is uh, I've been almost every letter of LGBTQ plus because I was I came out a little bit of time dipping my toe in. Trying. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Many of us have a journey of dipping our toe in and taking That's one right. step in. And, yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah, it's been it's been a wild ride. And, and, you know, the intersectionalities of how your gender affects your sexuality is really interesting as well. Um, but, you know, I was, I was one of like, I was in a dojo, martial arts school, where there were only a small handful of people that were born female. It was mostly all guys. It was more like a kickboxing gym, you know? So, so I really had a, a I was very immersed into a very masculine space. Um, and, you know, got to study a lot about that masculine jock-like behavior anyway, you know, very early on and the, the competitiveness in it. What was interesting in the martial arts is you saw the competitiveness and yet you also saw um, a brotherhood. Mm-hmm. That's people who trained together that, you know, for years that, that really creates a, a unique bond. For sure. You know, so I got to see a little of, of, of all of that. And I was, you know, really lucky enough to have my main instructor 
uh, growing up, he was just an amazing man. He was a heavyweight fighting champion, but he was also the kind of guy that would cry in front of us over something tender, you know, like us, like showering him with things for his birthday. That would just like, he would get really, you know, touched by that. And he would, mm-hmm. he wasn't afraid to show us that it would bring a few tears to his eyes, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I love that that he was a real good role model as well. Yeah, what that. a beautiful like, like role model of like being in a very traditionally masculine space. It's competitive and sports oriented, but also having access to your vulnerable emotions. Like, wow, yeah. <laughs> mind blowing. Especially <laughs> in the South, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Something yeah. that most boys don't get to experience is a role model that has access to all of that. It's true. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, on the other hand, I saw some toxic, you know, like there were some, you know, um, you know, also in the martial arts, you see some egos that become this big, you know, and some guys that like use their position and their power to like really um, belittle other people. You know, there's both of those personalities. Some can handle that leadership and and help others flourish with it. And some, you know, use it to... uh, make themselves feel better and put others down, unfortunately, you know? So I, I did see, uh, you know, some of all of it. And like I said, I'm just a keen observer. So I was just taking all this in studying, you know, <laughs> <laughs> making a note, putting this That's in right. my good to know folder. Got it. Uh-huh. <laughs> totally. And, and figuring out where there was some flexibility and realizing, you know, I realized really young, I didn't know how to explain it, but I realized really young that there were many different ways to be masculine or feminine. I saw that, right? I saw, you know, there were women there that could fix a car and women who were hardly left the house. You know what I mean? (laughs) So, you know, lots of different expressions. The same with masculinity. Um, You know, one of the most beautiful things I've seen, though, since I moved to to Seattle was... Uh, something I think I would have never seen growing up in the South. And that is men walking with, with like just really embracing their nurturing side and having their babies just wrapped to their chest and mm-hmm. walking up proudly, you know, mm-hmm. guys with beards and they got their baby, you know, all around. Mm-hmm. It's just, it really struck me how beautiful that is because, you know, in the traditional model, we're told that being a nurturer is not the masculine role. Yeah. We're the provider and the protector. We're not the not the nurturer, the carer giver. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think that that doesn't that messaging, a lot of us don't even get in touch with that nurturing side that we that is in there because of that. <laughs> so I started really examining the messaging. Like when somebody says to you, act like a lady if you're a little girl, what does that mean? You know, or somebody tells a little boy, you know. Right next to a little girl who's crying tells a little boy, you know, you need to toughen up. You shouldn't cry for the same thing she's crying for. Mm-hmm. And I just started really going, this, this doesn't make sense. Right? It's so amazing how early those messages start to get taught to us. Um, I, I had the the joyful opportunity to be able to be a, to have my, a blog that I wrote um, featured on your website. And I talk a little bit about our socialization and where that leads us as men to not being able to do some of those nurturing, caregiving, um, uh, tending to the health of our relationships because our socialization says don't do any of that. Don't be sensitive. Don't be emotional. Don't be weak. Don't be afraid. 
play with this toy that allows you to compete and conquer others versus care for. And so it's amazing how early those messages get implanted into us. And so it becomes really difficult for so many of us to really suss out like what is my authentic expression and what is just what I was told I needed to be because we start letting go of that really early on. Yeah. You know, one of the questions I ask people all the time is how much of your thinking is really your own thinking. And then I just let them sit with that. And I go back to your socialization because we get socialized from our families, our schools, our teachers, our, our faith communities and our peers. Right. And the hard thing is that uh, it's coming at us from all these directions. And sometimes the messages aren't even exactly spoken. Right. right? You just know that if you do this, you're going to like, you're going to get a lot of pushback, right? If you do certain things. Especially for children, because so much is happening, not on a conscious level for kids. They're, they're just sponges absorbing information. They can tell, they like, they can pick up on the difference when a parent says this is the rule, but the parent breaks the rule. They're much more paying attention to the parent's behavior than they are paying attention to the rule itself. And so, especially at that age, those like implicit messages are absorbed pretty quickly and, and get kind of locked in our nervous systems a bit. Sure do. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's uh, you know, and then my mother's marriages. So my mother was married five times by the time she was 25. Like I said, she had me at 16. So there was this like kind of revolving door and I studied all the behavior of those men coming in. <laughs> Right. You got a lot, you got a revolving door of watching different kind of male behavior, huh? Yeah. yeah. And some were violent. I mm. mean, we went through a time where, you know, like one of my mother's husbands beat her and, um, you know, and I literally saw somebody like be able to like the Jekyll and Hyde thing where they could be one minute acting one way and the next minute you, it's like you flip a switch and they just go crazy, you know? So I saw the, um, you know, some of those aspects. And I was just like really studying all this and, and, you know, the one or two or three emotions that a lot of masculine people are told it's okay to express our frustration and anger exactly. and, assert- and assertiveness, mm-hmm. right? Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm powerful. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> you know? But they don't, they don't, you know, say, well, but think about, how that's impacting the others around you and the way you're doing it. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly the article I wrote for your website was all about intention versus impact and how, and how we are trained not to pay attention to our impact as men. And like, how do we start to develop that now? Because it is a skill to practice. It sure is. You have to, you know, one of the things that I think is that we have to have one of the things I do now. And I, I think I learned this from the dojo um, is having that inner circle of people that you trust in your life. You trust their feedback because you know that, you know, it's for some people, they just have one person like this in your life. And it's a, it's a blessing. If you have even one, I'm lucky enough to have a few Mm. that I would call close enough friends that I trust their counsel. And I know that they're, I know that their intent is for my best, my growth, right? They want me to do well. And so they have no ulterior motive to give me feedback, you know, other than want me to thrive in life. Mm. 
And to have a few friends like that, partner, you know, a partner, a couple family members that you can really get that mirror from about your impact. Yeah. Because a lot of times we don't realize our impact unless we have those people we trust to give us that mirror, Mm -hmm. you know? So yeah, I think that's even more complicated for those men that they're in relationships where like the trust isn't there, where it's sort of been, there hasn't been the work to really, um, trust is either being built or eroded at all times in relationships. And when it's been eroded to a certain point, like somebody can give you feedback and it can be really hard to trust it, or it can be really hard to not become immediately defensive because the trust and safety isn't there. It's one of the reasons I love doing the work that I do with horses is that you get that mirror, but from an animal, you take the human element out of it where someone could lie to you. Someone could be deceiving you where they're like the trust element. And we're now with just a, a little bit of a clearer feedback mechanism through this animal, this being that's life depends on being a very sensitive creature. And we yeah. get to see what our external, what our impact is on the external environment when we get into a relationship like that. And so there's lots of different ways to do it, but I'm so, I think that is so important how, how important it is to, to cultivate and develop those relationships where there's trust and safety, where we can get true, real clear feedback and mirroring from others. Gosh, yeah. One of the things I work with um, men on in positive masculinity is developing healthy masculine friendships because a lot of men, I'm sure you know this and have found this from your work, um, you know, the depth of their male to male friendships is it's very shallow. A lot of men Absolutely. only talk about work and sports, you know, <laughs> um, you know, I've had men that uh, I've talked with that and and mentored in the group that have had lifelong friends that they don't even know if when their friend goes through a major crisis, like losing a parent or a spouse getting cancer, something major, you know, um, they're they're uncomfortable how to comfort and be there for their friend because they don't have that kind of depth in their relationship. You know, it's so shallow. It's a tap on the shoulder, right? Mm-hmm. type relationship and they talk shoulder to shoulder not looking at each other that's also a male culture thing which really impedes intimacy right when we look at one another we're actually taking in all of the ways we communicate right because we're seeing the more expression the body language but watch how men have a tendency to talk to one another they don't look at each other most of the time yeah, it's so much easier to have a conversation with another man sitting next to each other in the car where you're just shoulder to shoulder or where you're both working on something, both facing the thing that you're looking at right. um, than it is to actually just like stare eye to eye like you and I are doing with each other right now, for right. sure. Yeah. And I, you know, I think, um, I mean, honestly, some of that I think comes from the messaging of the fear of homophobia, right? I might Correct. be I look too intimate with my friend. I mean, we got to get over that. We got to get over that. (laughs) That's an old story. That is so used up and like we're over it. Right. (laughs) Moving on. Yeah. And I honestly think this is one thing that we as masculine people can learn from the feminine. Mm -hmm. They do intimate friendships much better. Yeah. Just do. They do. And I think we can admit that and learn from it, you know, because they actually share what they're feeling and what's really going on in their, in their heart, you know, with each other and give each other a lot of support Mm -hmm. in that way. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so yeah, that's one of the, one of the things I work with, cause I think that's imperative to our health actually. I mean, you know, the statistics are really, you know, they're pretty devastating when they're we look grim. at, yeah, when we look at the amount of depression among middle-aged men and suicide and, and why is that? Cause there's a loneliness mm -hmm. in us because we're not opening and being willing to embrace vulnerability. Yeah. I think a lot of men are feeling more and more isolated out in the world. And, and there may be like uh, a female partner or a mom or some one female person in their life yeah. that they depend on, that they can be a little bit more vulnerable with. But as you're saying, like our, our female or feminine identifying counterparts are often much better at having a diverse network of, of people that can meet different needs and, and show up for them and support them and, and be in those spaces of vulnerability and I think it's a human thing that's necessary. We're all wired for connection. We're not just not just women are are uh, wired for connection. We all are, and so we need that. And I think you we are seeing the consequences of sort of our uh, internalized homophobia, the ways that we haze each other as men by feminizing each other. Don't be a sissy. Don't be a girl. Like this rejection of the feminine that al doesn't allow us to really connect. Yeah, this is the, the, the issue with any binary system. A binary system is, you know, it's one against the other. The one needs the other to define itself because what am I? I'm opposite of that. And, um, you know, that's the hard thing with a binary system. It literally pits one against the other. Um, and it's not healthy. It's just, it's, first of all, it's false. Gender is not binary. Um, it's a spectrum like sexuality is. It's a big spectrum. Yeah. Can you tell me for this is something that always comes up in my mind for you? You and I both agree that gender is not on a binary. For you, who has been on your own gender journey, and you said you sort of represented every letter of the LGBT <laughs> at one point, why has it been important for you to identify as male and to, to like claim that identity? when you recognize that it's not really a binary in the yeah. way that like it almost like would trigger to an outside person who's never explored gender oh okay well you now you're fitting right back into the gender binary so like what is that like where does that come up for you well you know it's been a journey as i'll say it's been a journey my my um original, like, of course, my foundational learning was that it is a binary myself. And then I had to do a lot of um, opening and exploring to realize uh, that it's not. I always knew I was masculine since, I mean, literally four years old, I'm changing my name to a masculine name. I didn't know how to explain it, <laughs> what I was feeling. I just knew I didn't fit into what they told me I'm supposed to uh, as a feminine person. I didn't fit into the feminine model they were telling me. I should. Um, what I what I've come to realize it's it's so interesting is now I just I more identify as transmasculine, and masculinity has a huge spectrum to it in itself. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things I say when I teach is you know there's the Rock, you know Dwayne Johnson we know the Rock and mm -hmm. then that's one form of masculinity and there's Fred Rogers. Mm. A very different form of masculinity, and yet they're both masculine. That's why I think it's masculinities. 
Mm-hmm. You know, there's many different expressions, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love. Um, I've done some collaborations with uh, men that are part of the American Psychological Association's Division Fifty One, um, which study is the studies of men and masculinities. They've yeah. purposefully made sure to engage in the masculinities because it is about not creating a rigid structure that everybody has to follow. That it's really about the opening of that to be self-defined and mm-hmm. to still be valid as a self-defined version of masculinity. Yeah. I love that you brought up that, that word rigid. One of the things I, I have realized within myself, even though I grew up in with very rigid structures in the Bible belt in the South, right? Then you look at rigidity and, and then I, you know, I thought about it as an athlete. Rigidity is something that, no athlete wants because that's going to cause you to get injured. Rigidity mm-hmm. in our body as athletes, or as people even taking a walk, if you fall and you're rigid, you're going to get injured more, right? It really increases your chance of injury. Then I that, relate that to us emotionally. Well, then uh, I read a book Dr. Susan uh, David wrote, um, Emotional Agility. Mm-hmm. And she talks about the importance of being agile emotions emotionally. And we've all heard about, I think most of us have heard about this idea of a fixed mindset. People with a fixed mindset have a like hard black time. and white thinking. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. They have a harder time in relationships and in life, right? Because <laughs> they're very rigid. That's a rigid way of thinking. This is a, a quote from my book. Rigidity is nothing to celebrate. The ability to stay soft and agile with all the adversity we face to walk in our authenticity is rare. I just think, you know, the world is changing all the time all around us. Yeah. And that ability to stay agile. Another thing I relate to besides just the athletic part of agility is I grew up in Florida. Don't hold that against me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try not to. <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> But, you know, when those hurricanes come, which I grew up and lived through many, many hurricanes, right? The trees that are more rigid are the ones that get damaged. It's the palm trees that are flexible that come out of the storm fine. You know, it's another like life's lesson analogy to us, you know, that um, rigidity in our thinking and in our belief systems, um, it limits ourselves, but it also limits the relationships we have with others because then we're judging them on that rigid, narrow view, mm-hmm. right? Instead of allowing them the flexibility to walk their own journey. Yeah, I think we're seeing that on a hu- hugely on a cult- cultural level, like in our politics and our uh, divisiveness. It is really rigid and brittle and ready to snap at any moment in so many different arenas of our life, at least in the U.S. I think it's happening in lots of different places, but... Um, I think that the mo- those of us that learn to bend, that learn to be flexible, that learn to create like durability through our flexibility, that's what will help us move through this time frame and help us to kind of come to a place where we can see each other's humanity again, because we're missing that and losing that so often these days. We so we are, we so are, you know, the, abil- the ability to just have difficult conversations uncomfortable conversations, I call it, 
you know, I've had many of them as a trans person because, of course, you know, I think it was about seven years ago, the Huffington Post wrote an article that said more people in the United States of America claim to have seen a ghost than have knowingly met a transgender person in person. <laughs> and and that, that statistic was about 12% of the people claim to have seen a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> So one of the things as a teacher and a speaker I always do is I always say, everyone, please come up and shake my hand afterwards. So you have you have officially met a transgender person. I'm trying to up that statistic (laughs) (laughs) because it's easy for people to judge a group of people over there that they've never had a conversation with, that they've never looked eye to eye with. Right. It's easy to have these ideals about a certain type of person that you've never really engaged with. But once we come together and have a conversation, maybe break bread together, whatever, it changes that dynamic because now I'm a human. Mm-hmm. I'm not just whatever, you know, color my skin is or whatever my sexual orientation is or whatever my <laughs> gender identity is, right? Yeah. We find those commonalities in our humanness and that just changes the game. Yeah, and to bring that really into our work as men and, and the work that you and I are so fascinated about is is that I think that's even more important for men because our socialization as little boys teaches us to compete, teaches us to see others as objects in the way of our sort of objectives, um, hurdles to get through, um, uh, romantic partners to conquer. Like um, like we, we start to otherize people instead of seeing their humanity. And we get to, we're seeing the consequences of that in our world. That's the sort of the, the conversations are, uh, that have come out of the Me Too movement that are coming out of Black Lives Matter that come, are coming out of Time's Up. Like we're really looking at all of those different places in our culture where we've not been able to connect with the humanity. We've just connected with the otherized person and what our, what we do with our power or our privilege or our, um, what, the yeah the power i think is a is a good word for it what we do with our power when someone is other rather than the human across from me right oh god yeah so important for us to to open our view and just remember first of all that we're all we're all trying to figure this out none of us have all the answers number one <laughs> i always tell people if somebody tells you they have all the answers run like hell because they're full of it mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? yeah. i've had some hard learnings about thinking someone had all the answers and then going oh no gotta run away because it's we're yeah all, right we're all mm-hmm. i mean you know one of the things i always tell people about that is so interesting is uh if we all just think back in tens like think back of yourself 10 years ago and you thought you had a lot figured out that now 10 years later, you look back at it and you go, boy, I know a lot more now than I did. Mm-hmm. Then. I have a much deeper understanding than I did then. You know, one of the things I get people to do with uh, trying to understand transition is I get people that, people that are over 30. I say, look back at your high school yearbook and look at yourself. Are you still that same person? And of course, most people laugh because they look at that and how goofy it looks to you now. Uh-huh. You know, yeah. like, <laughs> all dressed up for prom or homecoming or whatever. And you look so you go, what was I thinking? Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You've transitioned from that person. You know, mm-hmm. that is not who you are today. Right. It's so funny because I, I often say that um, with my clients, 
regardless of how they identify on the sexuality spectrum, I say to them, like, gay people are not the only ones that have a coming out process. Each one of us has to come out around our belief systems, around our spirituality, our lack of spirituality, our boundaries. Like, our whole lives are a series of coming outs. And now what I'm hearing from you is, is that all everyone transitions also. It's not just for trans folk. That's right. Yeah. 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 That's how I try to get people to relate, you know, Mm -hmm. because, uh, and of course, the older you get, the more silly it is when you look back at that high school picture, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) The further away you feel from that person, right? Yeah, Yeah, totally. I'd love to pull you out a little bit more. You alluded to in the beginning, um, talking about being on the U.S. karate team and not transitioning until later in life so that you could compete. It's a pretty topical conversation in our culture right now, like trans athletes. And so I'd love to hear some of your own story with that and then kind of how that relates to what we're talking about around your own masculinity, around what you've learned about. Yeah, just share with me that story. Well, you know, the science hadn't caught up when I was on uh, still on the team, right? They've learned a lot more Uh, about it. And there just hasn't been honestly a lot of funding to study. Um, Unfortunately, you know, the trans community is small, so there's not a lot of funding for these kinds of studies to understand it. But I was in a contact sport. Uh, My, all my awards are in fighting. And so it's even more complicated when you're talking a contact sport than if you're just running track or something like that, you know, where you're not, you're not touching each other, right? (laughs) It's very different. Um, And it was really hard, but I also knew that I had such a unique opportunity. It was hard not to be my full authentic self, but only the top 100 athletes in every sport get an opportunity like that. So I knew that was such a rare opportunity that I had worked really hard for that I competed literally from the time I was 17 at that high level till I was 39. I also have good genetics as an athlete and held up that long. And at 39, I... uh, was the oldest one male or female on the U.S. karate team. And these 19, 18, 19 year old, 20 year olds were calling me the grandparent of the team. <laughs> <laughs> 39. Oh my yeah, God. I know. I know. Right. That yeah. is good genetics though for a contact sport. 39. That's yeah. 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 And so I won two medals in the world uh, championships at 39 and looked at my clock and said, this is probably a really good. <laughs> I'm going know, out on top. And so I, I retired and I helped, but I'm still a certified Olympic coach and referee. And, um, you know, they will allow you to do that, of course. And then I, I just am trying to help create a better path for athletes going forward. Um, you know, there's a lot of work to be done in that. Like I said, we need a lot more study around that. But the the actual science of it, there is there is more understanding of the fact that once you're on hormone replacement therapy for two years, you're no longer producing the, the hormones that you were born with. So I know there's a lot of push around, like, especially female trans athletes that they have all this testosterone, right? But once, if they've been on hormone replacement therapy, HRT, we call it for two years, they don't, they don't, they aren't having that it's really reversed all of that. So they don't have that advantage anymore. Mm. Now they had that in their original muscle development. But the minute they start the other hormones, they lose muscle tone right away. The minute they start the female hormones. So, I mean, there's a lot of science around it. 
you know, but what we have to really do is open people's mind to even listen to that Mm -hmm. (laughs) because a lot of people are stuck in the sex assigned at birth. They're just so stuck in that. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting to me how often trans women are at sort of like the bottom of the rung. Like it's in terms of the lack of power and privilege, like trans women get, have a really, really Um, challenging road ahead of them. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I hear these people say, oh, it's a fad now to be trans, I just, I look at them like, really? How can you, I mean, because we, um, I, I will tell you to wake up almost every day and hear of someplace in the world trying to make another law against you doing something basic as a trans person, you know, competing in the high school sports or going to the bathroom, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, um, it's daunting. Mm-hmm. daunting and who would sign up for that kind of abuse and limitation you know and people not just seeing your humanness mm-hmm. um, unless there was a real reason behind it yeah who would choose that path right. to be yeah. constantly be dehumanized by your culture by to otherize you even in terms of just like the basic necessity to use the bathroom like <laughs> who yeah. would choose that path as a fad oh this feels fun yeah that's not fun <laughs> No, it, that's people that have no understanding at all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you had mentioned that you're an um, uh, uh, Olympic coach and referee. Do you find yourself to be one of a few trans folk that are at that level? There are a few other trans folks that are in there. And now we also have more trans athletes, actually, mm-hmm. at an Olympic level. You know, we're, we're, we're making strides. Mm-hmm. Low. And especially when you think about um, the Olympics, because you're involving, uh, you know, the Olympic governing committee is it involves people from all these different countries with different levels of understanding. Right. And different cultural thoughts. Mm -hmm. So that is a little bit longer. It's not just like it's just the United States. When you're Olympics, you're in relationship with people from all these countries that help run this. Right. So. Yeah, and potentially competing in places where you're not actually physically safe or the laws are against you. Totally. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty scary, actually. Yeah. It's wild to think about the journey. I mean, I have my own relationship to it being a gay man, but I think there's a whole nother level of it when gender is also a part of it. That so many of us understand the concept of striving in our life and making strides towards betterment and towards bigger things. But for a lot of people that's focused on their careers, their relate, their romantic relationship, their children, all of those kinds of things. But when you also then have to make all that, put all that effort into just identity work and to just striving to be seen as valid and human, like how much, emotional toll that puts on an individual it's just like kind of i'm connecting with that on an empathetic emotional level um on a deeper level right now that it's not about just making strides as a as a person out there and like meeting your goals it's about striving for validity and for to be seen as valid oh it's so much so um it it's 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 emotional labor right it's it's like this constant work you know, um, and and then the gall of of a person like me, right, of the trans guy that's going to write a book and educate about masculinity. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell does he think he's doing? You know, the gall of this guy 
Um, but you know, I've been a teacher for so long because of the martial arts, right? I started, you know, when I started at six, one of the things the martial arts does is when you learn something, you turn around, they teach you really early to turn around and help the person at the belt rank under you and bring them up, right? Which helps solidify what you've learned in you mm-hmm. in a different way. You really think through what you've learned to, to be able to share it. And then, uh, you know, i and I'm, I just have a teacher's heart as well. I just want to help people thrive and do better. Yeah. Uh, so I feel I really, that from you so clearly. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like the people in my dojo, like, lifted me up and were there for me. And I gained so much from them that I wanted to pass that on as a, mm. as a teacher. And um, so I've done that, you know, and I just think that that, that sharing my experience I just had this experience of teaching at this retreat last week and they had me teach an entire class on socialization and gender. And I had so, and then run a men's circle. And I had so many men walk up to me afterwards and say, and these are cis men. uh, They're some bisexual, um, mostly I would say heteronormative um, that they said, wow, i had never thought about it like that. I'd never really thought through my own socialization. Thank you for opening my eyes to this, you know, and that, that makes it all worth it. Mm-hmm. It makes the journey and the struggle and the emotional labor all worth it, you know, mm-hmm. um, because it's just helping people also see how the traditional masculine model and the patriarchy has also limited all of us. You know, and getting more men to see that, that it's not healthy for us either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like we can, some of us are, are have been starting to wake up to the, the impacts on others outside of masculine, like for, right. on women, people of color, queer people. We've been awake to that. But then when we actually start to personalize it and recognize where it's been limiting us, like me, this is masculinity limits me constantly. So that rigidity of masculinity does. Um, and I love that you had the gall to become that teacher because like those men are showing you that you were, you were, you're meant to teach that because it's been your life's work and your life's journey. It's why I was saying in the beginning, how much I'm so grateful to have met you and you leading men's work from a queer perspective, because that's been my journey too. When I started the pod, this podcast, I was really worried and knew I'd get some critical feedback about like, what's this fag got to do telling me about how to be a man? And I got a little bit of that in the beginning. But when I knew that my own healing needed me to step into that and to like, take a seat at the table, that was such a transformative moment for me. And to see another man doing that and to be take having the gall to be like, eh, I'm gonna just do this, even though I wasn't given permission or invited, I'm gonna do it anyways that is using our privilege and power as men to for good for the constructive force rather than the destructive force. Yes, exactly. And we need to allow all, it's so important that we hear from different voices at the table, right? It's so important because it broadens our world, you know, it broadens our view and hopefully it gives us empathy and compassion um, and just allows us to see a bigger picture. Like, of the impact of things, you know, but then like we were saying before, I think us 
I think getting men to bring it back to how has it impacted me personally changes the game in their willingness to jump in and do this work of unraveling and peeling back the layers of their own socialization. And that's how we're going to change, really create big change. Yeah. Yeah. You got to personalize it. You got to show, you got to like, most people don't change until they feel the hurt (laughs) until they feel the, feel the discomfort of it. And when you start to recognize your own discomfort in it, that's when you start to, you have the motivation to make a change usually. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've often said to people, what if you had no limitations as a kid and nobody ever told you that you couldn't play with a certain thing or you couldn't try a certain activity because, you know, I've heard so many people say, you know, maybe I wanted to dance more, but that was for girls. I shouldn't do that. Maybe I wanted to learn to cook more, but that was not something I was told I was supposed to do, you know, and, and I've had girls say the same thing. I wasn't supposed to do this other thing because that was a boy's thing. You know, what if we had none of those limitations? Who would you be today? Mm-hmm. And what would you have tried and experienced that you haven't because that limited you? And it, most of it's up here, right? And societal pressure. But then we take that messaging and turn around and limit ourselves even as adults. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we internalize those voices and of right. control and limitation. And then we, start, we, we have no other choice but then to limit ourselves based yeah. on what we were told. Yeah. Yeah. So through all of your work, uh, through all of your athlete time and your time in the dojo, I know you affectionately um, nickname yourself the gender sensei. So you, you're, you're out. I will say I didn't nickname myself, but oh, okay. a fellow teacher friend, Reed Malco, he, I was teaching at something called sex geek summer camp, which he runs for sex educators. It's for oh. sex educators to help them build their sex and gender educators, to help them build their business. And he uh, and he is a fellow martial artist. Mm. And when I got gender there, he goes, "I think you are now the gender sensei." And I was like, "Whoa, buddy, that <laughs> is like, yeah, yeah, that's awesome." So, I love it. Yeah, so you're you're doing um, workshops around gender on LGBTQIA issues. Um, in different organizations, you are an Olympic athlete. Um, you're an Olympic coach. You're an Olympic uh, referee. You do sex education stuff. You've got your hands in a lot of things. Let's talk about why you specifically wanted to also do a portion of your work around masculinity and the positive masculinity groups that you've created. Tell me about it. Yeah. So when the Me Too movement, you know, uh, was at its peak. I was watching all these conversations, you know, that women were having about how the patriarchy and traditional and toxic masculinity has affected their lives. And what I saw was there was, I didn't see men involved in the conversation, except a few men that were, you know, resisting, right? Uh, That's the only part I, I saw men, a few men involved in the conversation. And I thought, why aren't men talking about the fact that this has also affected us and being a part of creating a healthier way forward for all of us. This is something we can't expect women to do for us alone. We need to help restructure this so it's healthier for all of us. And so that's what gave me the idea. And I literally had a download from the universe. I call it, you know, I get a vision basically. And I saw all these different forms of masculinity, all these different types of men sitting in a circle. 
sitting together at the table, men of various ages, ethnic backgrounds, education levels, you know, different life experiences, talking about this first working on healing, first working on healing from, well, first admitting that it's affected us negatively, Mm -hmm. then working on healing from that and holding space for one another to share how we've been hurt by it, which is huge. And then together working on how can we create something better for all of us to move forward. So that's the vision I had. So I called a friend of mine who was a Kinsey scale six gay guy, good buddy. And I knew he had a lot of experience with toxic masculinity. He had in fact a toxic father and he was, you know, his mannerisms were very gay young. And so his father started belittling him right away. He became like a state track champion and his father would never go support him or be proud of him when he would win a track meet because he told him it wasn't a man enough sport. He wanted him to hit people and play football. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, it was just crazy. Yeah. Wow. Um, he constantly belittled him. So I knew because we were good friends, we had talked about this because we had talked about, you know, sexuality and gender. We were activists together, good friends that are activists. And so when I got this idea, he was the person I thought of right away that he would understand this and want to do this work. So I called him and, and uh, told him about my download, my vision and said, would you, would you be willing to walk this journey with me? And he was like, hell yes, I'm in, let's do this. There's so much of a need for this. So we started the nonprofit and started the men's group together. And we actually even started the book together. Um, And then about a year and a half ago, he passed away of cancer at only 47. Mm. Um, And, you know, I wish he was here to see the book come to fruition with me. Um, And I hope he's, I hope he's, seeing it and proud up there that the work is carrying on. I miss him dearly. Mm. Um, but yeah, we both knew the importance of this from, you know, from different experiences, which was actually really great, you know, and here we had like a gay guy and a trans guy leading all these different guys <laughs> just straight through this. Um, and, you know, him and I would every now and then chuckle about that, you know, like what are the chances of that? You mm-hmm. know? But, but, you know, we just so believe in the, in the work that we're doing. And one of the things that we found is when we open up these conversations, wow, there's men really want to open up and have a safe space to talk about these things. But it's not easy to find, yeah. you know, especially in a masculine group. It's not mm-hmm. easy to find that, that will hold the space and not be judgmental and belittle you for having feelings about this and talking about um, the way you've been harmed from, you know, these old models. Mm. Yeah. I, I did not, uh, did not anticipate um, a very like tender, sweet story within all of that on top of just the creation of the group. Thank you for letting us have a little taste of what that friendship meant to you. Like to know that there are men that are having that sweetness in their connection and the grief of loss and also what you guys created together continues to last. And it's just really powerful to, to be witness to that story. So thank you for sharing it and letting us all into the the meaning of that relationship for you. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I I agree. It is hard to find those groups. I mean, I've lived in Seattle coming up on my sixth year now. And I didn't know that your group existed until recently. And I'm doing men's work and I'm doing like, I'm I'm a coach that's working with men around these things. And I didn't know you existed in the group. And so it is, it can be really challenging to find groups like that. I have sort of dabbled in other heart, heart-centered groups uh, of men's work in the Seattle area and just not found them to be what I was looking for. And so I love this element of, of the trans men and the gay men up there facilitating there. What has your experience been holding space for uh, all different types of men? Have you received any pushback or any challenges based on the fact that you're a trans man? Well, we, we, the proud boys tried to infiltrate a few of our meetings. <laughs> oh my gosh. What a uh, drama story. Uh, oh. <laughs> totally. And I was like, you know, I mean, at first I was, of course, frustrated. We were having Zoom meetings, you know, and they were tra- they were infiltrating our meetings. And and I mean, they were literally doing middle school stuff like drawing penises on the screen. And I, it was just ridiculous. I felt like I was managing a middle school. Class. You are kidding me. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And of course, once we realized what they were doing, we booted them out. You know, we got them out of there. But um. And then I said, Drew and I talked about it, my, and I said, you know, actually, it's kind of, um, we should be proud that that they're worried about us. That they're know? paying attention. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> proud yeah. that the Proud Boys are paying attention. <laughs> That's right, because, you know, they don't want us to mess with their traditional model. They're, they want that. They're holding on to it with all their teeth, you know, um, because, you know, that kind of m- man is threatened by any new thinking around, you know, equity and equality and us embracing new ways to be. Right. Cause there's only a finite amount of power and I'm not willing to give up any of mine so that anybody else can feel empowered. Yes, because it's pie. (laughs) Power is pie. There will Mm -hmm. not be any pie left for me. Uh Yeah. Those darn scarcity models that get embedded in us so easily. And that's another thing, you know, in the masculine community that we have to combat. And, and it's funny for me to talk about this. I think some people find it funny as somebody who's been a competitor my whole life. And I love sport competition. I love it. But I've always been able to lay that aside when I get out of the ring or out of the, you know, off the competition floor. Some people, they have a harder time with that, right? But in masculine world, we're we're competitive to the point that we will step on, like you mentioned earlier, we'll do whatever we, we need to do to be successful, to win the prize, to be the most productive, to, you know, get the title, whatever it is, you know, that's like, that's the messaging that we're given, right? To be the top dog, right? It's like King of the Hill game when we were kids. And that's actually celebrated in the masculine community. Totally. (laughs) Yeah. Instead of encouraging collaboration, which makes us all so much stronger and, mm-hmm. and we learn from one another and you know, we all grow, you know, and that's one of the, the messages I'm trying to help people realize that how limiting that is to all of us and how it, how it, that actually, I think, is another hindrance to close masculine friendships and mm-hmm. is that drive to be competitive instead of collaborative. 
Yeah, absolutely. If you see your your fellow man as the competitor and that you're fighting for scarce resources or power, of course you're not going to have close intimate. It's like the killer of intimacy for sure. Yeah. yeah. Like the warrior, I'm not going to put my weapons down to sit with you. I'm going to yeah. you know, keep your guard up, right? Totally. Yeah. And yeah. tell me how this this men's work group led to the book. I know you kind of talked about that you and your friends started writing it together. Um, and now it's now it's in your hands and it's you're the author that's sort of put this out there. Tell me a little bit about the book. Well, when Drew and I started, we started by telling our stories with with uh, traditional and toxic masculinity and how why we came to this right work. And um, and, you know, we we had created many lessons plan lesson plans basically or outlines for our discussion group because uh, we would cover a different topic every month. That's the way we run our monthly discussion group is we pick a different topic and we cover that as you saw when you joined us last month, uh, which was the, the topic was about masculinity and intimacy mm-hmm. and what are the obstacles to us having healthy intimacy, which is such an unusual conversation for men to have together. Totally. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So we pick sometimes edgy topics and we talk about the man masks, but Drew and I had created all of these lesson plans together, uh, basically outlines for, for work, you know, with our, our discussion group. And then we looked at it and said, this, we already basically have a book here. We just need to fill out more, you know, from our outlines, because of course we'd use that and we'd have all this stuff we talk about teaching. And we did a lot of research on each of those subjects, like healthy masculine friendships was one of the workshops, you know, the man masks that we wear, you know, the always self-sufficient, you know, the, you know, we go on and on no pain, no gain mask, you know, <laughs> we can go on and on about that. We did all this research and had all this information already for our group. So it was kind of, it wasn't a hard jump for us to say we can write a book about this and reach more people with this message. Yeah. So that's how that project started. And we, we did a few recordings um, early because Drew had a harder time writing. Um, And so we would do recordings and then I had it um, transcribed uh, for some of the work we did on the book. And then, um, then I got a book coach after Drew passed away and just because I needed help formatting. I'd never, I'd written a lot of articles. I've, you know, mm-hmm. written for the Huffington Post and different things, but um, formatting for a book I had never done. So, and that's a whole new world. So, uh, and I, so I got a book coach, a professional book coach and editor who helped me when I got stuck and would tell me you need to, you know, fill in a little more here, a little less over here, that kind of thing and help me put it all together. Um, and yeah, there it is. It's like, it's, it's like birthing something. I will tell you, it's a scary, it's an exciting thing. It's scary. You put your whole heart and soul into it and then you put it out into the world for people to sit back and do what they want with it. You know, and it's, that's, it's like, I've heard a lot of authors say it's like birthing and then you're, ch- you know, you, the child leaves and they go out to the world and you're like, oh my God. You know? uh-huh. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm always impressed by people who who sit down and do that kind of creation, the book creation thing. 
the publishing world is hard. The editing process is hard. The letting go of the book once it's out there is hard. Like, yeah, there are joyful, exciting parts of it, but there is a lot of emotional labor and a lot of just actual like writing labor and mental labor that goes into yeah. a book. Sure is. I mean, I think the statistic is like there's 80, I think it's 86%, they say, of people in the world say they want to write a book, 1% follow through with it. Wow. It's, uh, yeah, well, because it's daunting. daunting. It is Uh a hard, I'm already already working on two other books now. It's really difficult, though. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. But but now I got the bug. I got the bug. You got Um, the bug. Because this, you know, I'm... I feel very blessed, especially as a, a trans person writing about this subject. The book has been number one new release in five categories. Oh, my gosh. And men's health is one of them. Gender studies. Uh, it's, it's really done sociology. It's really done so well so far. Most authors sell 250 books a year. This book is it's we're at about 475 already. And it's only been out three months. Oh, nice. <laughs> Congratulations. Uh, it's just It's just really blowing my mind a bit, you know, and um, I had a, I had a, got an email the other day. This is the crazy kind of things that happen from doing something like this. I got an email the other day from a guy from Yugoslavia, Yugoslavia, <laughs> saying he read my book and he wanted to Zoom with me. And I set up a time, uh, this is a couple of weeks ago, set up a time to have a conversation with this guy. And he was so um, moved by the, the book that he wanted to know if I'm going to train facilitators to start positive masculinity groups at other places because he wants to start one there. Oh, my gosh. That's yeah. amazing. So, I mean, the, that kind of thing can happen from this. That's, yeah. you know, the idea of putting that out into the world. In the way the publishing world is now, there's a lot of crazy things about it. I totally. mean, but it it has such a far reach too, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty amazing. Oh, I'm so excited for your success with this and, and sort of thinking about the rippling impact that that has on the world. That's so powerful to even yeah. know it reached Yugoslavia and somebody's excited <laughs> and inspired to take your learning, your writings and and teach others and to implement it out there in different areas of the world. That's fantastic. Yeah. And I've even had single moms that are raising boys by the book uh, because they want to know how to raise healthy boys. Oh gosh, that's so needed. Uh, That makes me so happy. I've had female therapists that treat male patients buy the book and talk to me about, they bought it because they want to learn how to help their masculine patients with, the things they deal with around masculinity. It's just, it's really great. Oh, I'm so thrilled for you and for for the work that you and I are both so passionate about. You said you have the bug. You, you said you're writing new books. Are you up for teasing what people can expect <laughs> to find from you in the future? Sure. Um, well, one of, my wife is also doing gender work. Um, she is in her PhD program right now for psychology and she's specializing in women's sexual agency Mm. so she's studying the doing a whole gender dive into the women's end and i'm doing this dive into the you know i've done the dive into the whole thing but now specializing more in the masculine so one of the workshops we co-teach is how to be a masculine feminist Mm. and we're co-writing a book on that 
Um, we believe that there are a lot of men out there uh, that want to be allies to women that have a lot of women in their life they care about and they want to lift them up. But some people don't know where to begin or how to do it. We're going to, we, and what we do in the workshop, and what we're going to do in the book is lay out a roadmap for that. Oh, that's so needed because there's, I do meet so many men that are afraid of doing it wrong and afraid of even stepping into action because they're going to do it wrong. Cancel culture is a real thing going on right now. And, yeah. and so it is like we, some of us do need a roadmap to give us permission and a way forward how to step into that. So oh, I'm so glad you guys are doing that. Yeah. And I'm also writing one on uh, specifically, I have a chapter in this book on healthy masculine friendships. Mm. I'm going to um, do an entire book on it because there's so much around that. Ugh. Gosh, yeah. you, you're like picking so many of my favorite like sweet spots. Oh, I love this. I can't wait to I, read these books in the future. I might interview you for that book. <laughs> oh, I, love to. I do want other perspectives. You know, of course, that's really important in that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no. Uh, oh, I'm so excited for the future for that. Um, please do reach out. Well, I have had such a pleasure. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. As I said in the beginning, and I just want to keep reinforcing, I just feel very inspired to be connected with you, to be in community with another queer person that's doing this kind of work. It feels it's reinvigorating and makes me feel like, okay, I'm not alone doing this. It's not so isolating. So thank you for the work that you're no. doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If people want to find out more about you and your work out there in the world, how do they do so? Where are your websites, social media, any of that kind of stuff? Yeah. Positive masculinity now.org is the website. And that's also the Instagram and, and the TikTok and the, you know, we're doing all kinds of fun stuff out there. We have a positive masculinity um, page on Facebook as well. Um, but if you go to the website, you'll get the links to all of that in a YouTube channel. Um, and yeah. And, you know, one thing I wanted to mention real quick that I think we've talked about the queer community, but that toxic and traditional masculinity and the patriarchy is also alive and well in the queer community. Oh, 100%. Yeah, some Tough. people would think it's not, but we've all had that same social conditioning. You know, so it, it, it needs to be unpeeled there as well. Right? Yeah, absolutely. It's happening in the queer community. We're still using the same outdated tools and uh, engagement styles that we were raised with. And so we have broken out of that with our queer identities. And I want to encourage people to continue breaking out of those traditional ways and those rigid mindsets and fixed mindsets on, especially on masculinity and power. And like, let's just, let's stop the cycle of like rewounding each other because we're, yeah. we've been wounded. Like let's do our work and let's not continue to rewound each other. I'm so on board with that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. It's well, so important. I hope people will go to your website, check out the blog. There is a, a recent post um, uh, that came out in August or, that I wrote around intention versus impact with masculinity. So I'd encourage people yeah. to go check that out. Uh, if people want to get in connection with me, you can go to my website at travisstock.com. You can also reach me at, at Travers03 on Instagram. That's where some of the ongoing conversations are um, about, about the podcast and about how to continue engaging in the new masculine not just by listening to the episodes. I'm also on Patreon. You can follow me on patreon.com slash the new masculine if you want to become a contributor and support the mission of the podcast. I see you're raising your book. We forgot to promote the book. Let's make sure that we promote the book, Positive Masculinity Now by Mac McGregor. Um, and it's on Amazon. You can find it there. 
print, and then in the in the late fall, I'm going into the studio to do the audio versions. So, oh, yeah. good. I'm glad because so many of us are now like listening to our books rather than reading, like while we're doing our other things. So I'm glad you're getting an audio out there. Yeah. Thank well, you. thank you yeah. so much, Mac, for joining me, for being a part of the new masculine, for inviting me to be a part of positive masculinity. Uh, it's just been such a pleasure to have this conversation. Yes. Thank you.